immigrants are good people. I know that's a very broad statement, but studies bear this point out. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The Laura Flanders Show, On the Media, The Breach, and Off Kilter. I want to ask you a question about a thought I have, because it's all about me now, <laughs> uh, on immigration. And and we always look at, it, at the issue in humanitarian terms, but I want to look at it as an economic term. And, and I get that there are two people I like talking to, three people I like talking to most, historians, economists, and demographers. And I find demographers interesting. And this, this seed of an idea was given to me by a demographer who I interviewed once, who was telling me, look, there are issues about the future of our social welfare programs, right? Or social safety nets, social security, Medicare. There, these are these are serious issues. You had a baby boom. Uh, you didn't have as many people behind it. Uh, these type of things. Yet, you actually have 11 million people in this country right now who are not recognized. Well, you can basically, you know, you, you bring them into the fold. You bring them into the society. So as, as, as we have Paul Ryan and all these people talking about um, we have to cut Social Security, we have to cut Medicare, we have to reform these things. Not everyone who, you know, will we'll, we'll keep it intact for people who are about to get on it, but people before that, you know, it'll be means tested, all these type of things, right? And we have to. We have no choice. Well, maybe we do have a choice. I mean, I'm sure there are many choices, but one way... That we can address this, and it's not—it's not based in a humanitarian argument or or, or a moral argument. It's—it's it's based in really our own um, self-interest, actually, to bring these folks out of the shadows into society, remove the obstacles for them to be successful, and then participate. And and you know they'll—they will fill in the gap that we're missing to move forward. Absolutely, and this has always been true. That's why I started with the history of not being taken in by yet another leader, so-called, finding it politically convenient to beat up on immigrants. <clears throat> let, me, let me talk for a minute as an economist. Most human beings in a society like ours take an enormous amount of resources to get to the point when they can become productive and give back. So when you're an infant, when you're a toddler, when you're a little child, the society pours resources. It feeds you, it clothes you, it shelters you, then it educates you for 20 years uh, up to through high school and maybe beyond to college. And then finally, after an enormous investment has been put into you, an enormous cost to the society, you begin to give back. Well, now compare that to an immigrant. Most immigrants come as young adults. That's who most immigrants are, which means the cost of developing whatever skills they have 
has been born by another country, mm. not by this one. Mm. We get the benefit of their productive years, and we don't have to pay the cost of getting them ready for their productive years. That's a subsidy that Guatemala or Mexico or Nicaragua or Uruguay, that's subsidy of those societies who can't afford it to the United States, which doesn't need it. It's a perverse economic flow. And the United States owes, in, a, in an honest sense, the fact that it has the benefit of the productivity of young adults crossing into the country, legally or otherwise, yeah. because the cost of their education, the cost of their upbringing, all of the time that they took without giving was born by another country far away. I never hear that argument being... But it ought to be made because it's very real. And let me tell you, 20 years of food, clothing, shelter, and education is a lot more wealth poured into those people than any period of six months or a year that they go on unemployment or anything else that they're able to get here. That's a small part of what has already been saved for the United States by the reality of what immigrants are and what they bring. An honest discussion of immigrants and the problems they bring and the assets they bring, the benefits and the costs, is what Mr. Trump has never engaged in. What this is not about. This is not an honest engagement with what do we get from immigrants? What does it cost us? How could we manage it better? All of which are perfectly reasonable questions. This is an attempt for scapegoating, pure and simple. To It's like advertising something. You don't talk about its costs and benefits. You talk about what's good about it. You hide everything that's bad about it in order to get money out of a public's pocket to buy whatever it is you sell. That's not honest communication. That's advertising. The scapegoating of immigrants is not an honest discussion of a social issue. It's a scapegoating problem so that we don't ask, why do we run the society the way we do? Yeah, as an economist, I I want you to be honest with me about my idea here. You can even shoo it away that I mentioned earlier, because I, I, I think about this uh, a lot, and again, it's this idea of who's going to take care of this aging population that we have. Well, it's, it's here, but, but we're, we're, we're treating it horribly, right? We're going to be right. taken care of people by people who's, whose parents or who themselves were treated quite poorly. It, it's actually in our interest. It's, I'm not even talking about morality here. It's in our self-preservation, our self-interest to remove obstacles for the people who are here to succeed. Absolutely. In an honest discussion, you would say, look, if we have a population bubble, which we do because of the baby booms, if we now have a, a huge number of people becoming needy in the sense of cashing in on their social security, and we don't have a a follow-up generation producing the output, the wealth that can be passed to the older ones, then immigrants are absolutely playing an important role in our society. They keep working and putting money into the social system, social safety net system, so that the older ones uh, can do it. And again, if you had an honest discussion of immigration, that would be one of the benefits to the United States of having adults who don't need anything out of the system arrive here as adults so they can put into the system not only what they themselves earn, but the extras that become available for a whole host of social programs. Yes, absolutely, you're on to something that is important, and in any honest discussion of immigration, for or for that matter, any other labor issue, would be listed as the costs and benefits and what we have to deal with to make it work better.
so that's the last part I wanted to ask you about, and that is the global nature of this. I mean, where do the workers that are brand worker members come from in terms of the world? Where are your members from? Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, lots of countries. What lessons do you draw from that? Because the lesson being drawn by the Trump administration is build walls, keep people out. And a lot of people, even within the labor movement, are thinking that's the way to go. We need to keep our workers legal, secure, build walls around our workplaces. With our board chair, uh, Nezri, he's a, a wonderful uh, scholar. He's a labor economist. And he, when we were talking about this, he said, Kathy, it's a paradox, but believe it or not, the fewer restrictions you have on workers being able to go where they need to go, the more protection all workers will have. Yes. And, and I said, Patrick, how could that be? And he said, because capital can travel freely wherever it wants. Goods travel more freely than people. The only ones suffering restrictions are workers. So what happens is capital follows the most abusive working conditions to exploit workers. If workers had the freedom to leave those places, capital would lose that leverage. That's that's his perspective. Um, and speaking to a lot of progressive economists, they actually talk about a very open immigration policy ultimately being the better longer-term strategy to bring labor standards up here and around the world. It is a global problem. We cannot solve it by being made in the USA. We need to solve it with a global solution. And in the short term? In the short term, I, as I said, at this moment in time is a moment for real solidarity and weaving together our movements. It's a moment where the immigration issues, the workers' rights issues, the gender issues, the race issues have come together in a particular toxic brew. The strange maybe opportunity that that brings up is that it, it brings us all closer together to respond. As I said, the, the solidarity with migrant justice and these are workers that 15 years ago you wouldn't have seen in Vermont, as you said, the world has changed, has been beautiful. Beautiful is just the only word that comes to mind. The outpouring of love and support is, I think, the beginning of changing this sort of supremacist, toxic environment that this administration is moving forward. Doug Massey is a professor of sociology at Princeton specializing in immigration. What's the biggest myth? The biggest myth today is that it's still continuing. <laughs> in fact, illegal migration ended eight years ago and has been zero or negative since 2008 because migration is a young person's game. If you don't migrate between the ages of 15 and 30, you don't migrate at all. And the average age in Mexico is now 28 years old. Another popular myth is that undocumented immigrants commit a lot of crimes. Do they? Immigrants in general and immigrant neighborhoods in particular have very low rates of crime, much lower than native-born people. 
the U.S. counties along the Mexico-U.S. border are among the safest, most crime-free counties in the United States. And as far as terrorist threat goes, there's no evidence that there's ever been a terrorist cell, any terrorist that's ever tried to cross into the United States from Mexico. What about the fact that immigrants steal our jobs? Is that a fact? Not really. The one group that they compete with in the labor force are low-skilled, high school or less educated workers. And even in that group, the effects are actually quite small. Immigrants actually maintain jobs in the United States that would have gone overseas a long time ago. You're just not going to get Native American workers to go out into the Coachella Valley in 120 degree heat to harvest watermelons. Mexicans and Latinos more broadly are the backbone of the agriculture workforce and also the food processing workforce. All the studies show that on balance, they're quite a benefit to the United States. They pay taxes. They're also consumers and create demand, and they provide a variety of services to make Americans more productive, particularly in the fields of child care, yard work, health care. I think if people really thought about it, what they would want to do would be to legalize the 11 million people so their wage rates would rise and they wouldn't compete unfairly with American workers. At this point, these people have been here on an average of 10 to 20 years because there hasn't been any new migration for the last eight years. And the majority of these people now have U.S.-born American citizen kids. So by punishing the parents, you're also punishing the kids. People will say, well, the undocumented immigrant population is a big drain on health and social services, school resources, the welfare system. This is something that we heard quite a lot at the Republican National Convention. It's not a big drain. Immigrants in general are very uninvolved in the welfare system. In fact, legal immigrants are banned for five years from receiving these federally subsidized services. Undocumented migrants are banned from Obamacare, of course, the Affordable Care Act. The only real expense is emergency medical care. Schools and health care are the two places where they do have an effect because they're young and they have kids. Kids that are born here are American citizen kids. It does create a burden for localities that have large immigrant populations. That could be solved with a revenue-sharing formula that took into account the number of foreign-born in different states and localities. But it's much easier for politicians to whine about the burdens rather than actually take care of the burdens using federal revenues. So medical care and schools are the two biggest. Actually, there's a bigger one that you've talked about quite a lot the cost associated with illegal immigration. Well, the immigration detention system is now the fastest growing portion of the American criminal justice complex. For decades, people would come, work for a period, and go back. What we did starting in the mid-1980s was to ramp up border enforcement, really militarize the border between Mexico and the United States. And this drove up the costs and the risks of border crossing to a point where people decided they weren't going to cross the border anymore. And they did this by staying put in the United States once they'd made it in, rather than circulating back and forth as they had been. So mm-hmm. essentially in the 1990s, we were spending 3 to $4 billion a year, and we doubled the net rate of undocumented population growth. So let us go back even further to the 1965 U.S. Immigration Act that unintentionally created this flood of undocumented immigration in the first place. Because as you've written, prior 
to the mid-60s, illegal immigration from Mexico really didn't happen because the U.S. was legally admitting about 50,000 Mexicans a year. So what happened in 1965? Two things happened in 1965. First, uh, Congress amended the Immigration and Nationality Act. And they did it for good reason. They wanted to get rid of the racist provisions that had been put in place in the 19th century and the early 20th century, policies that discriminated against Asians and Africans and Southern and Eastern Europeans. They scrapped the old system and tried to replace it with a a neutral system that didn't favor any particular country. And they did this by creating a new system where every country got 20,000 visas per year. The quota for legal immigration from Mexico is the same as the quota for Botswana or Nepal. And, of course, Mexico is 130 million people. It's our second largest trading partner. We share a 2,000-mile border, and it's treated like some of the most distant nations in the world. You say this led essentially to the creation of illegal immigration as a thing. Yeah, in the late 1950s, there was no illegal migration from Mexico. The other component of what was going on was a large guest worker program called the Bracero Program. Pretty bad rep the Bracero Program had. A lot of those immigrants who came into this country to work in uh, agriculture were horribly mistreated and exploited. Yes, and that's why Congress um, was acting. Both their repeal of the Bracero legislation and their amendment to the Immigration Nationality Act were not considered to be immigration law at the time. They were considered to be civil rights policies. They were righting old wrongs. And the Bracero program came to be seen as an exploitive labor program on a par with southern sharecropping. But what followed was four decades of illegal migration and increasing growing exploitation, far worse than what Bracero migrants experienced back in the 1950s and early 60s. So why is immigration such a political flashpoint if it's not actually a problem? Well, I think that the United States is in the midst of a very strong and profound demographic transition that has unnerved a lot of older white Americans. You have to remember that the baby boom grew up in the whitest, most native America that's ever existed. In 1970, the foreign-born percentage of the United States for the first and only time in American history fell below 5%. And African Americans were segregated and out of sight. That's the America that people look back and think that that's normal. And that's all changed. There are two things that happened to create kind of a perfect storm for an anti-immigrant, nativist, xenophobic reaction. One is a rapidly changing demography, which upsets people, especially older people. And the second thing was a massive increase in income inequality. Immigrants aren't to blame for that. That's just part of the broader set of changes that have come with a global economy. And the Mexico border has become an all-purpose symbol of a line drawn in the sand by politicians to show their concern about America and its security to voters. But it's all basically theater. This illegal invasion idea is tied to whatever the perceived security threat of the day happens to be. 
Well, immigration has always been used as a ploy in American domestic politics. And when illegal migration arose after 1965, it fit into the discourse perfectly because if migrants are illegal, by definition, they're lawbreakers and criminals. So you find even liberal politicians call for more border enforcement against whatever the perceived uh, enemy of the day is. During the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, it was communists and Sandinistas from Central America. Then in the 90s and 2000s, it became Al-Qaeda, and now it's ISIS, and most recently it was Ebola. Let me ask you about the coverage of immigration issues. If you are advising news consumers on red flags in coverage that people should be very wary of? The first thing to look for is is somebody trying to scare you. The second is, who are they citing? Where are they getting their information, if at all? Media coverage tends to present this side and that side, and they present them as equivalent. Look at the organizations that are producing the information. Organizations that have a self-interested stake in Portraying immigration as bad, I don't think can be trusted. The Center for Immigration Studies, Numbers America, they're avowedly anti-immigrant. They take census data, but then they twist it in ways that are really misleading. Mm-hmm. And what's an organization that does good work? The Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. Pew Research Center is nonpartisan. It employs highly qualified demographers and social scientists to analyze the data to provide a factual base for understanding important public policy issues. Another obvious source is the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. What about people who want their nation back? Can they get it back with a wall or through deportations? That cow's out of the barn. Even if we cut off the immigrants completely today, we would still undergo a gradual process by which the United States would become a majority-minority society where whites are no longer a majority. So the people who want their country back, they can't have it. No, but if you listen to the rhetoric in the 1920s, old-line WASP leaders said, if we don't stop this immigration now, we're going to become an Italian and Polish nation. And, okay, there's lots of Italians and Polish Americans today, but nobody sees them as different, as un-American. And the same thing will happen with Latinos and Asians. It'll probably be a very different America with very different words to describe who we are as a people and what kind of social categories exist within it. But it's not going to go back to the 1970 period where it was only 4.7% immigrant and blacks were segregated, Asians were out of sight, and Latinos were a small percentage of the population. That world is gone for good and there's nothing you can do about it except adapt and make it work for you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. The Republicans have been using a lot of misinformation to kind of scare people and inflame popular passions against DACA and these kids. What's some of the most egregious misinformation that you would like to correct? (laughs) I mean, Jeff Sessions, his speech was so unbelievable to me. I mean, he talked about how DACA actually makes the country more unsafe and how DACA, you know, puts us at risk of terrorism um, and said that it was almost like an act of compassion that he was rescinding DACA. Um, it was just so unbelievable. Has there ever been a case of any DACA individual being linked to terror in any way? No. I mean, not that I'm aware of. I've never heard of such a thing. But that's just sort of a very popular narrative from the Trump administration. There is the constant, constant conflating of immigration and terrorism or immigration and the murdering of American citizens. Um, This is just what they do. It's the narrative that they trot out every time they discuss immigration. And it's basically just the narrative of white supremacy. Yeah. Repackaged with an immigration view. They're coming for your women. Right. It is the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, which is also why I think Trump um, talks so much about Kate's law, you know, and he picks these very particular cases um, in which an undocumented immigrant Um, murdered, in this case, a white woman in particular, and um, sort of plants these seeds that immigrants cannot be trusted and that they are harmful and that they are inherently violent and dangerous. And while Sessions didn't get into the kind of bloody language that Trump often uses, or even that Sessions has used in the past, it's clear that that's what it was, just this constant hammering away of the point that any immigrants, no matter who they are or where they're from, are bad for the United States and they endanger American citizens, whether by, you know, shooting them in the streets or by taking their jobs. What can be done in terms of pushing back against this? I mean, <laughs> there are endless studies now, you know, that, that prove that this narrative isn't true, that undocumented immigrants and immigrants in general are uh, fearful of any interactions with law enforcement to the point where when bad things happen to them, you know, which often do, because when you don't have any status in a country, you're consistently exploited and not paid money that you're supposed to or abused at work. They are so fearful of law enforcement and getting on their radar that they don't even report crimes that are being committed against them by American citizens. And so what I and the crime rate amongst immigrants themselves is lower, even conservatives agree, yes. than the population at large. Yes, yes. So, yeah, immigrants commit fewer crimes than American citizens. And um, I know that some people think of that as fake news, but it, it simply just is, you know. And by 
by deputizing local law enforcement as they try to do an SB4 to basically act as immigration officials or by sort of creating these very scary environments for undocumented people to live in where they feel like they're being hunted and targeted and all of this rhetoric is around. It, it's, it's not beneficial to anyone to ever, ever push those narratives. And if you have to, if that's what's being discussed, then you can sort of, you know, rely on those studies that show that immigrants aren't committing crimes at the levels that Trump says that. And also that this narrative that these are the populations of people, these criminals that he is targeting in these raids, that they're that they're violent criminals. I mean, if you actually look at the numbers, they're not. They don't have criminal records. And what often happens is ICE will go to a place where there are a lot of undocumented immigrants seeking one person who has a criminal record, and then they will detain everyone in the area who does not have authorization to be in the United States. And then it all gets labeled as, you know, ICE apprehended 100 criminal aliens. And the other thing to point out is that people have felonies. So he refers to them as felons as well. If you lived in the United States and you were deported, you know, you built a life in the United States, perhaps you have children and family here and you're deported and you come back to the United States to be with your family and reunite with your family and then you get detained by ICE again, uh, you're a felon. So that's another easy way to call people criminals and felons. are sanctuary cities and what was Trump's threat that had to do with federal funding? So a sanctuary city is basically a place where the local law enforcement can choose to limit their cooperation with federal immigration detention officers. So basically, let's say that you're a police officer, you could and you have an immigrant and you're um, who's been arrested. And the federal government says, hey, can you please detain that person? until I'm able to come over there to arrest them, to detain them for potential uh, deportation proceedings. And a local law enforcement officer can say no or yes. Depending on the severity of the crimes, usually the uh, local law enforcement would turn the immigrant over if there's a very serious crime. So limit cooperation sounds like a bad thing. It sounds like cities are going rogue and not doing something that they're supposed to do, which I guess, depending on which side of the table you sit on, could be an accurate description. But what it means is really saying, hey, we value our immigrants, we value new Americans, and we don't believe that deportation is necessarily the right response. Am I getting that right? That's absolutely true. So a lot of these law enforcement officers, especially in big metropolitan cities where you'll see a lot of immigrant populations, Populations, what they're saying is we really, like you said, we value our immigrants, we value public safety over um, some of these, uh, you know, negative stereotypes of saying that immigrants are criminals and that we should turn all of them over. 
So for some of these uh, arrests that happen, it happens over minor issues, perhaps like a lack of driver's license, which happens to a lot of immigrants because many of them cannot get driver's licenses. Or it could happen over like a parking ticket that you never paid, but you still got arrested for. So that doesn't make them a criminal in the sense that we think of criminals like murderers and rapists, the way that Donald Trump has characterized these people. But it it does show that law enforcement agencies, they do value public safety. And that's the point that we should keep remembering, which is that if immigrants feel uncomfortable in reporting crimes, that's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help immigrants. It's not going to help Americans. So and that actually brings us to the second point. And I do want to come back to sanctuary cities, but I, I feel like you just offered a really nice segue into this new office launched by uh, the Department of Homeland Security. This new office is called Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I I honestly don't even know what it stands for. I'm assuming the V is victims, and then That's of right. immigrant crimes. Don't know what the E is. Is All there any? Everything that you 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 uh, voiced, yes. Everything I voiced, yes. <laughs> yes. So it's the Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Office, Voice, and this is basically a hotline for victims of crimes committed by immigrants to call into ICE, which is the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, to tell them, hey. This is what happened to me. I want to know about the resources that I can access. So this is a hotline that purportedly is for victims to feel safe. But this kind of also plays into the stereotype that President Trump has of immigrants, right? Which is that they're criminals, they're rapists, they're murderers. And this hotline doesn't really do anything more than provide perhaps like assistance or social services to these people um, and provide public information of these immigrants who are in custody. That's all it does. So obviously nothing wrong or bad inherently in providing services and resources for people who are victims of crimes. And I don't want to suggest that that's what you're saying or that's what I'm saying. But as you noted, very much just the creation and the publicity around the creation of the office feeds right into this uh, this narrative that Donald Trump has been pushing since he was a candidate, that immigrants are, as you said, murderers and rapists. Is there any evidence to back up that claim? Most immigrants are good people. (laughs) I know that's like a very broad statement, but studies bear this point out. When it sounds it sounds silly for you to say something as common sense and simple as that in a blanket statement, but it is fair, I think, to bring back up Donald Trump's own words from the campaign when he said something that was the exact opposite of that, which was Mexicans are rapists. And he was speaking specifically about Mexico. Mexicans Mm -hmm. are rapists and criminals and murderers. Um, I'm sure some of them are good people. That's actually a quote. That's correct. That was basically his exact words. And You know, studies show that first generation immigrants do not commit crime at the level of native born Americans. And there are many reasons to this. One of the main reasons that immigrants don't commit crimes is because it is punishable by deportation. And it's like, why would you risk deportation to commit a crime? And I think that's why the crime level among the first generation immigrants is so low. But for an office, for the Trump administration to come up with an office, a dedicated hotline for you to report crimes committed by immigrants seems like an overreach in a way to 
fortify this point that immigrants are criminals. And that's just simply not true. And all they're trying to do is pull together an aggregation of stories, of anecdotes, of criminal immigrants so that they could perhaps use it on the trail later on. Not terribly dissimilar from conservative backed policies for, say, drug testing of public assistance applicants, people who turn to public assistance are statistically less likely to use illegal substances than people who are more well to do. But the, the establishment of these kinds of policies reinforces the notion that somehow, oh, my God, all these people who are receiving public assistance are using illegal drugs. Right. Or buying lobster or whatever. Or, you know, in this case, that Immigrants are criminals, which they are not. Now, some people got a little confused with the announcement of this <laughs> office, and it wasn't just me who didn't know what voice stood for, although I thank you for giving me some credit and validation for guessing not terribly wrongly. Um, but some people thought that this was a little more X-Files than immigration related. <laughs> Tell us that story. So a lot of people went above and beyond their uh, call of duty to go on Twitter to ask people to uh, call into this hotline with reports of extraterrestrial activity or extraterrestrial encounters in a way. Um, a different kind of aliens. So this hotline has been flooded with calls about space aliens or X-Files or the Jetsons or all these great you know, shows that are out there. Um, and Homeland Security is not happy. <laughs> Well, I, Mulder, if you're listening, and man, I hope David Duchovny does listen to this show because that would be a total dream for me. That'd be um, I can trust that you called as well and that the truth is indeed out there. Um, so obviously we're making a little bit light and people made light of this, but um, but really playing into uh, the importance of language here, which Donald exactly Trump has true. really thrown out the window. The very use of the word illegal alien or the words illegal alien, which is something that a lot of folks who are critics of uh, comprehensive immigration reform um, call folks who are undocumented immigrants or who are new Americans um, often will, will, will say. It's certainly a term for us to otherize immigrants and to make them feel like they're less than Americans, that they're not Americans. So that's why we have this term illegal aliens. Although there is really nothing alien about immigrants since we are a country built on immigrant labor, on the immigrant workforce. So there's nothing alien about this population. But to fortify this notion that they are alien to this country really, again, plays into the stereotype that Trump and his administration has of not welcoming these people into our communities. As always, I would like to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. Listeners specifically like Adam B., our newest social justice warrior member, and Trisha S., a professional protester member. So huge thanks to them for, as always, going above and beyond. But also thanks to all of the members and donors who help keep this show going. Now all new recurring donations of all sizes are being processed by Patreon, where you can pledge as low as a buck a month using either PayPal or a standard issue credit card. Membership levels start at $6 a month and include a separate members podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. For instance, this week coming up will include a rerun episode for everybody, but members will also get a bonus episode 
as thanks for their support of the show. And their support is actually particularly needed right now as advertisers are scarce for reasons I, I frankly don't understand. So whether you can afford a buck a month or 20, when you sign up right now, you're really helping us out and you'll receive instant access to all of the member benefits we produce to thank you for your support. So either find Best of the Left on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. border wall were to be built against all odds, what would the other results be in terms of drugs coming in? How would cartels respond besides gravitating towards more concentrated and deadly products? Yeah, they've, they've already responded. And so the countermeasures are already in place, uh, which is something that Trump is oblivious to. So the idea that building a wall, no matter how high it is, um, is not going to, A, a it's not possible or feasible physio, uh, in terms of uh, just the physics of it. Trump wants a solid wall, for instance, and by some accounts, 30 feet high. Uh, well, if you've ever been into a, if you've ever been in a desert and experienced a flash flood, <laughs> the idea of putting a wall in the middle of that, the power of a flash flood is just uh, mind boggling. Right now we have lots of fencing, 700 miles or so of fencing along that border, and they have four inch gaps in the fence. And that's to let wildlife and seeds and sand and water uh, to go through it. And it's also for the safety of our own Border Patrol. So the Border Patrol themselves do not want a solid wall because it's dangerous for them. They want a wall they can see through so they can see if people are amassing on the other side, planning some kind of breakthrough or attack or, or ambush or whatever. Uh, so for their own safety, they're saying this is a dumb idea. Now, let's suppose this wall is built. Well, uh, the countermeasures have been in place for a long time. So one of the first reactions from the drug traffickers when the, the fence went up was to uh, build ramps on flatbed trucks. So they literally drive a truck up to the fence, and there are photos you can see on the web of them driving SUVs literally over the fence and <laughs> coming down the other side. So there would be those like two rails for the tires to go on, so exactly. go up and then exactly. down again on the other side? Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, if we get better at stopping those, then there's... The old, you know, they go retro, uh, Roman technology, catapults. They're literally building catapults to fling drug, the bales of drugs over that wall. If you build a higher wall, they've already got a backup plan, which is pneumatic air cannons. People are familiar with T-shirt cannons in sports stadiums and that sort of thing. These are souped-up versions of that. They mount them in the back of pickup trucks, and they have air compressors that can launch huge bales of drugs over that wall like a mortar. And if uh, we get an even higher wall, then there's already an, a plan B, which is ultralights. They used to use small aircraft, and, and, and they used to use you know old airliners on their last legs for one-way missions. And more recently, they've adapted and used ultralight aircraft, which are slow. They can carry a couple hundred pounds of payload in a drop cage, and they can go over the wall but under the radar. But even if, though we're getting better at detecting those, uh, there's yet another backup plan for the aerial route, which is drones. And so for high-value drugs like methamphetamine or heroin uh, or cocaine, uh, it may, you know, that's a very practical application because you don't need a huge payload. So that's the air route. On the sea route, they've been evolving for decades as well. So they used to use fishing boats and shrimp boats and hide their drugs in, in seafood shipments. Then they moved to cigarette boats or speed boats, uh, and we got faster, and, and our Coast Guard got faster vessels. 
And so then they adapted and switched to semi-submersibles, which are quasi-submarines that remain 90% underwater. And those can move, you know, 6 to 12 tons per, per shipment. And they lie still during the day, and they throw a blue tarp over themselves, and they just lie still. They travel by night. And as one DE agent put it, he said, look, you try finding something the size of a log floating in the Pacific Ocean. That's how difficult it is to stop this. But nonetheless, we got better at detecting those semi-submersibles. So the traffickers are now building fully functional, proper submarines that can dive up to 50 feet below water. Those are really hard to detect. Uh, and again, they can move up to 10, 12 tons at a time. And there's an even more ingenious innovation after that, which is narco torpedoes. So they've got uh, these, these pods that can either be bolted underneath the ship and released if they're stopped and searched, or they can be towed with a long, long cable. It can be hundreds of meters long. And so if you stop those vessels, they just simply release the cable, um, and there's nothing to find. Meanwhile, the, the pod, or the narco torpedo, has a homing beacon on it that's encoded, and it's instructed to surface every couple of hours and admit its, its location to the backup ship that's you know miles, miles behind it, and they'll pick up the payload. And then on the land route, there's underground, so narco tunnels. There are hundreds of narco tunnels crisscrossing the border. We found maybe a hundred of them, and they're incredibly sophisticated. They've got rail systems, ventilation, electricity, um, and those, once they're open, can move tons and tons per week of drugs 24-7, and including moving money and, and guns and ammunition back the other direction. What percentage of illicit drugs in the U.S. came over the southern border to begin with? And then of those, what percentage came in illicitly as opposed to just through the regular ports of entry? Yeah, it's hard to say because these are these are guesstimates by the government. You only you can only catch what you catch. You can't uh, you know see what you can't catch. But suffice it to say that very little of it comes in the overland route, which is what Trump has in mind. What he talks about, uh, and 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 Congressman Steve King and these other people, you know, talking about you know these these migrants with the calves the size of cantaloupes, you know, they're schlepping a couple of kilos of, <laughs> of of drugs because the coyotes, the traffickers, you know, force them to carry drugs while they, while they smuggle the humans. Uh, that's peanuts. You're talking about kilos at that point, and I'm talking about tons, hundreds of tons of drugs. That's where they're coming through in terms of the narco submarines, in terms of the tunnels, uh, in terms of most of those drugs are coming through legal checkpoints on the border. Okay, They're not bypassing the wall. They're not trying to go around the wall or over the wall or under the wall. They're going through the wall legally. And so there are there's a an, an X prize, if you will. If you can find a better way to hide drugs in vehicles, whether it's 18 wheelers or, or or SUVs or passenger vehicles, so that's what they're doing. And the you know they're playing this incredible cat and mouse game. And you can see presentations by Border Patrol uh, or Customs on all the ingenious ways they found people have been able to, to carve out compartments and, and ways to smuggle and ship legal shipments. So they're coming right through legal ports of entry that a wall will not stop. Should we worry that if we really tighten up the illicit channels over the border, we're more at risk for corruption through the illicit channels? I mean, that people will start bribing people rather than exactly. sneaking drugs? So how, how are these so many vehicles getting through these legal checkpoints right now? Some of it is because they're ingenious, and some of it is because they've bribed people on both sides of the border uh, to let certain vehicles pass through. And so the Border Patrol has a big problem with corruption, now they want to push the surge in hiring and, and taking all kinds of shortcuts in terms of, of background checks for these employees. And basically, if you 
build a huge wall, you're going to create a funnel to these legal checkpoints. And the people who are corrupt right now and, and making money, um, they're going to have even more business being funneled through their pockets, <laughs> so to speak. And it seems like it's also just a numbers game that, you know, you can't search every vehicle going through the checkpoint because so much commerce goes in and out, so much legitimate travel, exactly. that it's always going to be a stochastic thing, even if you're totally honest. Exactly. Uh, so this is the fallacy that, 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 that the drug war is, you know, based upon, that somehow we can, we can seal our borders uh, that'll keep drugs out. We've got thousands of miles of border. We've got thousands of miles of shoreline and over 300 legal ports of entry, and you can't possibly police all of that. We don't inspect all the cargo that comes into this country. We only we profile it. We inspect a small percentage of it, um, and so it's always going to come through. But it, and and what comes through is very important because if we do stop a lot of the heroin or or traditional drugs, these far more dangerous synthetic substitutes are more powerful more diabolical and have uh, more more unintended consequences uh, and are much more dangerous in many ways. And those are so po- powerful and concentrated, you can smuggle them in very tiny packages. So I mentioned carfentanil earlier, the elephant tranquilizer. That That's insanely powerful. And the way it comes through in the mail very often, these postal packages, is not that it's smuggled inside a cell phone part or anything uh, or, or you know, electronics or, or whatever. No, it's smuggled inside the silica gel packs, the things you usually throw away, right? And the traffickers will, will inform their, their buyers um, there'll be, you know, four silica packs in this shipment. Um, one of them will have a tiny red dot in one corner. That's where you find the carfentanil. <laughs> so imagine having customs stop every package that comes through this country to look for a tiny red dot that might give some indication. I mean, this is just ludicrous. And so we take a problem that's bad and make it worse. Has anybody been killed? Police officers or postal employees or anybody else been killed by loose car fentanyl? Because I can't imagine it's always perfectly packaged. It is a very serious hazard for them. Um, so even a, just a little bit of dust can be very, very dangerous. So this is quite hazardous. Uh, but again, these are problems of our own making. Uh, users on the street don't want to use carfentanil. And, uh, they don't want to use fentanyl, and they certainly don't want to use carfentanil. But that's what dealers are cutting their, their shipments with now because of, of you know, the rush to profits. Donald Trump is obsessed with these Central American criminal gangs. I mean, he was talking Friday in his Long Island appearance about MS-13, which is, I guess, a Salvadoran-based international gang, and describing in these horrible, violent, sounding very hyperbolic terms how awful they are, and they kill young girls and torture them for sport before they kill them. I mean, these people are the victims of whatever the reality of that is. There are legitimate asylum seekers who are fleeing those same gangs in Central America. Does the Trump administration, does Trump draw any distinction 
between asylum seekers and other undocumented immigrants? Well, I think there is probably no one in this country who would argue that we shouldn't be vigorously hunting down and prosecuting and bringing to justice the Mara Salvatrucha, which is the sort of overall name of this particular Salvadoran gang. I think uh, we should remember that this gang originated in the 1980s in Los Angeles. Mm. So this is a gang that started in Los Angeles and its members were massively deported in that period of time. They went back to El Salvador and uh, because of the weakness of the institutions in El Salvador, they have, particularly in recent years, expanded very dramatically. So this is there are places in El Salvador where MS-13 or MS-18 or these gangs related to the Mara Salvatrucha are actually contesting government control at the same time that these there are gangs in places like Long Island associated with this organization that have been there for generations. It's not a new phenomenon. What's happening now is that you have uh, particularly the young people who've come in recent years, a lot of them have not had support. They've come without their family members in many cases. So they're kind of out there and they're vulnerable to, to recruitment. So that is something that has been happening. And, but on the other hand, the victims of this gang in many cases are other immigrants and even other immigrants from Central America, which is a distinction that President Trump did not make on Friday. Yeah, I don't think he made any mention of that in, in his speech or in other speeches. I mean, I think he leaves the clear implication that illegal, undocumented immigrants are victimizing native-born Americans. He doesn't say that, but he certainly doesn't point out that these are immigrant communities and that most of the victims are in the same immigrant community. Yes, that's exactly right. And this is a real dilemma for the police who are trying to uh, combat these gangs because you really uh, it's very difficult to to do that unless you can get some kind of cooperation from the people in the community. So uh, many times you'll find now a conflict between the local police and even some people within immigration and customs enforcement who are trying to work with informants and do classic police work to try and confront these gangs. And, you know, and the, the Trump administration and its policies, which are not making the distinction between the community and the predator and therefore making it much more likely that the community will not trust the police when they try and gain information about what the gang is doing. The Trump administration's other fixation and Jeff Sessions' fixation is around the sanctuary cities. What effect does any of that actually have that some large cities have declared themselves in that way protected spaces for undocumented immigrants or, or anti-deportation? I think the first thing is that the word sanctuary has become sort of a common phrase, but it's actually, in most cases, a major misnomer. Mm. Uh, what the, many cities around the country have uh, tried to do is to limit the cooperation with immigration authorities so that the immigration authorities and the police are working together to deport arrest and deport people who've committed crimes. So the whole notion of the sanctuary city was in a certain way an effort to focus everyone's effort on identifying the people that really are serious threats and committing crimes and to not associate the police with immigration enforcement 
when the police have to confront the community in general. Mm. And so in most places that have now been identified as sanctuary cities by the Trump administration, the actual limitations on ICE are are not great. They're, they, they, uh, it has to do with uh, whether or not the cities will hold a person they have in their custody for extra time so that ICE can come and pick that person up. And a lot of cities have said, well, we're not going to do that. This is not just, you know, kind of liberal strongholds by any means. There are police departments in, you know, Dallas, Houston. They're just, they want to be careful about when they associate with with immigration authorities because they need to have a relationship yeah. with the local community. Julia, immigration enforcement is a central issue for Jeff Sessions. He's been in the front on the issue of challenging sanctuary cities and bringing, I think, more immigration judges to the border. What's what's his role in this? Well, a peculiarity of our immigration courts is that they are not part of the judiciary. They're actually part of the Justice Department. So Attorney General Sessions is in charge of the immigration courts, and he has I think he's aware of the severe crisis that those courts are in. And he interestingly has been uh, moving to approve and place many judges who were actually appointed by Attorney General Lynch at the same time as the in the Justice Department. Per se, he has really encouraged federal prosecutors to be undertaking immigration prosecution. So he's has identified a prosecutor in every district across the whole country to start bringing uh, immigration cases. That would be people who returned after they were deported. There are a number of federal uh, crimes that are associated with immigration. So the, he and, and particularly in the in the case of the gangs, uh, the Justice Department obviously has a very important role to play in the event that the Trump administration decides to prosecute these folks in the U.S. in the federal system rather than just deport them. So that's a little unclear as to whether they're going to do that or not. How has policy on deportations actually changed since Trump became president? I mean, it's been it's been more than than in half a year now. And you hear all kinds of things. I mean, you hear that they've stepped up deportations, but maybe not that much. You you know, they're, they're different there. They're, you get different hints about what's actually going on. What what is their policy and what is, what's different? The big difference is that the Trump administration is ready to deport anyone who doesn't have legal status in the United States. The Obama administration, especially in the last two years, made increasingly focused efforts to target criminal immigrants, immigrants who had been convicted of crimes. And there was plenty of work to do on that front. And and the Trump administration has just wiped away all of the documentation, all of the instructions and guidance that steered immigration agents towards criminals who had con- uh, convicted of crimes. And now the Trump administration has said, if an immigration officer thinks you might have committed a crime or you might be a risk to public safety, that person can be deported. But in addition, if anyone who is detained in the course of an ICE operation, what they call a collateral, those people are now being deported as well. And so there's no criteria anymore to prevent uh, immigration and customs enforcement from deporting 
for example, this recent case that we had, a guy in Ohio who was the father of four United States citizen children, no criminal record, you know, he was just out of status and he hadn't gotten, he had not been successful in the court and the man was deported. That guy never would have been deported under the Obama administration. Very unlikely. The other thing that's happening is that that uh, in, there are lots of people in the country who have been under what's called an order of supervision. So these are people who walked right up to the door of deportation and then the authorities said, OK, you know, this is not a bad guy. Uh, this is just an immigration problem. And so we'll allow this person to come in every six months, report to ICE. And as long as they don't commit an, any offense and, you know, stay, preserve the safety of the community, we'll let them stay. And all of those people now, when they're coming in to report to ICE, now they're being detained and deported. Right. So in a way, the Obama administration policy was we obviously have limited resources. We can't do everything. Let's focus on the worst criminals and be aggressive about deporting them. The Trump policy, in a funny way, is don't just focus on the worst criminals because we're not willing to acknowledge that we can't deport everybody even though the moment we're not really trying to deport everybody, we're just leaving a lot of ambiguity about who will deport and who we won't. Yes. Yeah, so it, this has had a major impact in terms of spreading fear and concern and and distress in immigrant communities. But in practical terms, in real terms, uh, the numbers of people who've been arrested for deportation have gone up considerably. But the big increases in people precisely who don't have criminal records. Yeah. You, you've reported on, on both sides of the border, Julia. I mean, what's the what's the mood like among communities that are that flow back and forth? That is migrants who, who move back and forth across the border to Mexico and other Central American countries. Is there greater fear about coming? Is there are people uh, avoiding the authorities. I mean, what's what's life like for an undocumented immigrant now? Well, part of the problem with this whole picture is that the scenario that you just painted of people moving back and across the border, that doesn't happen anymore. And that's a big part of the problem. People can't leave because they can't get back in. And so we've and this is a problem that's existed for many years. The more you enforce the border, the more you bottle up the people who are out of status inside the United States because they can't leave. Even though so much of it is historically seasonal labor, agricultural labor that would go back and forth multiple times a year. Yes, right? yes. Uh, but I think there is a general sense in Mexico that it's just much harder, much more dangerous, much more expensive to cross the border uh, than it used to be. So that and now with President Trump, that just caps it off for a lot of people. It's just not worth the risk for a lot of people in Mexico. The Central Americans are in a different situation because this is a very dangerous, these gangs are really brutal. They're, they are trapped and their home community is suddenly taken over by a gang. If they go across the street into the territory of another gang, they can be murdered. It's it's a very dangerous situation. And so that's part of the problem. And an interesting thing to think about is the origin of this whole problem is that was this mass deportation of these gang members to El Salvador in the 1980s when the country was in the institutions hmm. were so weak that the justice system in El Salvador could not absorb them. And now we're talking about doing the same thing again. So one has to wonder if that's good policy. 
We've just heard clips today, starting with Richard Wolff on Economic Update, explaining the economic benefits of welcoming immigrants who are ready to contribute to our society. The Laura Flanders Show spoke with a couple of labor rights organizers discussing the long-term perspective that open borders help raise labor standards worldwide. On the Media went through a series of myths about immigration in America. The Breach discussed the misinformation used to scare people into fearing immigrants. Off-Kilter explained sanctuary cities and the myth that immigrants are more likely to be criminals than any other group. The Breach broke down a long list of reasons why a border wall wouldn't even put a dent in drug trafficking. And finally, we just heard the Trump cast explain a variety of ways that U.S. immigration policy has ended up backfiring in the past and will likely backfire in the future. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, my name is Almira, and I'm from Berkeley, California, and I want to thank you for your episode on the unnatural disasters, and I totally understand the frustration about how so many people in the mainstream media are not talking about the effects of climate change on making these disasters worse. But for myself, I see the exact same pattern of behavior and pattern of avoidance in uh, progressive circles or liberal circles where people are avoiding talking about the effects of animal agriculture on climate change. You know, the animal agriculture is number one, if not one of, you know, the top causes of climate change. And yet nobody is talking about how we need to stop eating animals, stop breeding them at such a mass scale, and how all this is actually contributing to so much violence against animals in and of itself. So, you know, animal agriculture is causing all of these problems with global warming and making all these disasters worse. And it's also causing the unnecessary deaths of billions of animals every year. So I would love to see a show where you address the issue of animal rights and how this is negatively impacting everyone on this planet, the animals, the humans, and our climate. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, just a real quick response to our voicemail from Almira. This is one of those strange situations where I can simultaneously be a member of the media and a culprit of the exact scenario that she's describing, and also someone who is separate from the media and a fellow critic of the media and broader progressive movement. So I I completely agree uh, with the points she's making and that we don't talk nearly enough about the effects of animal agriculture. I have in the past, but as everyone sort of understands, I'm, I'm a little bit hamstrung by what everyone else says, so I can simultaneously admit if I worked much, much harder, yes, I could go and specifically find uh, more content that focuses on animal agriculture and its links to climate change and the myriad other problems uh, with eating animals, and I don't do that, admittedly, but at the same time, I can criticize everyone else in the media who's making it extra hard for me to try to make a show that focuses on that. So I, I can play both, both sides of that argument, um, you know, pretty, pretty fairly, I think. And, uh, the, the one thing I'll say about the topic, I mean, I have a fairly decent understanding of why this is the case. 
you know, I'm always a fan of differentiating between excuses and reasons. So it's not an excuse that we don't talk about something that is very, very obviously and blatantly true and incredibly important. But there are reasons that we can help explain why people uh, like to steer away from the conversation about how we treat animals on this planet. And it's because, uh, you know, a little variety of things. People are super, super, super irrational about what they eat. They get incredibly emotional about it. And people who are as as progressive and science-based and well-meaning and environment-caring as you can imagine may still have hang-ups about what they eat because it's what they grew up eating and they have emotional connections to their food and what makes them feel comfortable and their attachments to their, you know, the nostalgia of their childhood or the connections they have with their parents or grandparents. And it, it's not actually that dissimilar from telling a West Virginia coal miner that the good, hard, honest work that he and his father and his father's father have been doing for generations is harming the planet, that you can kind of understand why there would be a negative emotional reaction to that. And, and that's more or less, obviously not exact because analogies are never exact, but you get the sense that being told what you've been doing and what you've sort of been told is okay to do your whole life is has actually been damaging the planet all along it is is a very hard thing to wrap your mind around and 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 come to accept so it's not surprising that people have a very strong emotional reaction to talk like that and in a world in which organizations or media outlets are dependent on the support of their viewers listeners contributors etc. There's this self-reinforcing inertia that prevents people from pushing that issue too much because they don't want to alienate the people who they depend on to do all of the rest of their good work. So all the big green groups, all the climate change organizations, oftentimes the best you will get out of them is tacit acknowledgement that yes, uh, you know, f- animal agriculture and consumption of meat is a contributor to climate change, and we should probably do something about that, but they are just simply not going to focus on it that much. They would much rather focus on fossil fuels, which are much easier to demonize and just call dirty and bad, and, uh, you know, honestly, they should do a better job of separating the fuels from the people who excavate those fuels. That could be a different conversation about showing respect to people like those coal miners who react emotionally negatively to being told that their career path uh, is destroying the planet. You know, you should be able to separate that, and and we need to get to the point where we can do the same thing with food and separate our habits and our past habits and the results of those habits and the damage they are doing. But I don't know. I, I, I think I think in our culture, separating yourself from what you eat. I mean, just as I'm saying that, I mean, the, the, the phrase comes to mind, you are what you eat. So uh, that, that's like one of the only things that is more personal to us than our careers in this, you know, in, in our society where 
when you ask a person, what are you, they're just as likely to, or more likely to respond with their job title than anything else. I, I think I think what people eat is one of the few things more closely attached to one's own identity than their career. And again, it's not an excuse; it's a, it's an explanation. So that that's where we are on uh, on animal rights and and agriculture and climate change. And so I I agree. I am guilty of being a member of the media who doesn't put as much emphasis on that as I should, and I am also a critic of the media who passes the buck to some degree to the rest of the media progressive sphere for not talking about it enough, because if it were a, a regular topic of conversation, that would be easily reflected in this show. I mean, that's, that's what I end up doing even if I wasn't doing it consciously, this show becomes a mirror that is held up to the progressive movement and the conversations had within it. That is just not one of the conversations that happens very often, and therefore it's sort of reflected in the show how how rarely uh, that gets talked about. As is often the case, listeners have some great recommendations for me to uh, to point me in the direction of some shows that maybe I don't know about and, you know, sources to pull content from. So if you know about some shows that I should put in my queue or that maybe some volunteers that help the show now uh, collect material, send those to me. We'll check them out and, you know, hopefully be able to incorporate more on this topic and similar topics going forward. So just email those to me, call on the voicemail line, whatever you'd like to do. So as always, keep the comments coming in on this or anything else. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify Amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Stories and forget who it is with